Okay, so it's fantastic uh, today to be with uh, John Andrews, Dr. John Andrews. Thank you so much for being uh, here. And we're going to dive into uh, one of the first chapters in, in the book on worship, which is uh, the chapter on the Lord who is one. In the first few chapters of the book, we explore the nature of God himself. And so, John, it was amazing of you to contribute this chapter uh, focused on the oneness of God um, and his nature as revealed early on in Scripture and how we are to respond to him. So for those listening, uh, why don't you just begin by telling us a bit, what is the Shema, this thing called the Shema, if people are not familiar with it, and, and why is it so important? Uh, well, first of all, it's great to be with you. Um, what an honour to contribute to the book. It, uh, it was a true privilege, so thank you. Um, I, I think the Shema at the heart of it uh, really is captured by the word itself. The, the word means uh, hear. And of course, it begins with this great confession in Deuteronomy 6. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. And it really is an invitation into, I think, understanding who the Lord is and our appropriate response to that understanding. What's really important for us to understand is that this new confession is uh, contextualized in a moment when God's people are about to go into the land of promise. So if you read the right. book of Exodus and the book of Deuteronomy, they sound really similar. There's lots of bits that sort of sound very similar. But what's really interesting is there are some absolutely unique bits in Deuteronomy, which are about shaping the people towards possessing the land. And this is one of those new insertions. This, this is a new piece of understanding. It's a, a confession, a unique confession that sits at the very heart of Israel. A bit like um, the confession of the church, which says you are the Christ, the son of a living God. In the same way that the church is built around that confession, Israel was built around this marvelous confession. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. And you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, all your soul, and all your strength. And I think it forms this bedrock confession. It has in it both revelation and a call to response. Mm, fantastic. And so through the chapter, you kind of track that revelation and response angle and kind of unpack it so helpfully uh, for people who might not be familiar with it. And one of the ways into that you you do is you take the, the word Shema itself that, that means not just hear, but obey. And you make the point that there, is, there isn't a word for obey, so to speak, on its own. Yeah, um, so it, just, just talk a bit about that. Yeah, it's a striking thought that in biblical Hebrew, uh, especially in the Torah, there's no word for obey. So so the idea of obedience gets folded into this idea to hear. And right. that's why you'll sometimes have a text in English translated, uh, obey, obey, or uh, he did this, or she did that, or you shall do. Uh, and, and the heart of it is this hearing word. And really, it's a beautifully nuanced word. So at one level, it can mean just literally hear, but, but the beautiful layers of it, the nuance of it is, is to hear and obey. Uh, in other words, you know you've heard something, when you do it hmm. you, you know you've heard something when you obey it now any any parent listening to this interview uh, will have had the experience of speaking to their children and their children have uh, listened but not heard 
Okay, so so they've heard, they've listened to the words, but they haven't responded. And that's really the idea there of Shema. It's not just that we hear the words, but we show we've heard the words by then obeying the words or by Mm. responding to the words. So Jesus tells a cool little parable uh, in the context of his teaching in Matthew. In fact, I was reading it this morning as part of my daily devotions where a father goes to a son and says, uh, go out and work in the field. And the son says, no, but later on he does. And then he goes to the second son and says, go and work in the field. He says, of course I will, but he doesn't. Uh, And there you have a a beautiful example of Shema. The the first one actually heard his father. The second one didn't. So he Mm -hmm. heard and obeyed. And that's really the essence. And I think that's a beautiful nuanced idea at the heart of worship. It's not just that we are to engage with God intellectually or engage with God through through hearing words, but we are to capture the heart of those words and with it the heart of God and then respond and obey to those words. And I mm. think that's the very nuance of, of that, that the text and of worship, I think. I, I love that. Um, I, I, that. That Matthew 21 passage, is it, with the father and the two sons sure. and and when you understand that in the context of the Deuteronomy 6, 4 to 5, it's this whole new, because de- on its own, that Matthew passage is uncomfortable, isn't it? It's confusing. It's like, oh, well, you know, surely the person who said they would do it, you know, maybe they just got distracted, but they did say they'd do it. So I'm more with them. You know, that's your kind of gut. But actually, when you understand it, no, this links to this core concept of worship, which is hear and obey. Absolutely. Uh, it's so powerful. And, and, and one of the things we wanted to do in the book was communicate that worship is this whole of life lived thing, that it's not just music, it's the whole of life. So um, the, the Shema, and I guess that's why um, we went for that in this chapter, it's it's right at the core of that concept, isn't it? it and continued, is. and just tell us a bit, because it continued to be so, didn't it, through the prophets, would call yes. them back to this. So just say a bit of that arc of how it's been long lasting for Israel. Yeah, I mean, I think I think what the magnificence of the Shema is that it points in essence to an intimate covenant relationship between the Lord and a group of people. Uh, it is mm-hmm. a, an absolutely unique concept in, in the context of the, the ancient Near East world, but also it continues to mark this phenomenal relationship that God wants to have with people. It is not simply transactional, Mm. it's covenantal. Uh, And and God is making a commitment to pour himself into this people if this people will unreservedly and wholeheartedly marry themselves to him, give themselves to him. And if you really hear the essence of Shema, it is, it is, it is the, the call for God to be at the center and for the whole of our being to be uh, consumed, to be drawn into this worship and understanding of him. And of course, as we track the journey of God's people, uh, there were wonderful highs and there were also just some dreadful, dreadful lows. I mean, catastrophic lows, really. And the catastrophic lows in the journey of God's people are, are, are coinciding the moments when their hearts turn from him. Mm. And often you get this motif of love and marriage and, and God reaching out to 
uh, even his his bride, his wife, his his the one that he wants to to be connected to, uh, and so the prophets uh, come into play because they're constantly calling people back to this simple idea. They're calling them back to the centrality of this idea that God wants to be loved with all of our being, and God wants to be not just first but central to everything, that everything is touched by him because he is at the center of everything. And the prophets are really the conscience of the Torah. They, mm. they are calling out, come back, return, come back to the Lord your God. And of course, it's beautifully illustrated in the story of Josiah, that when Josiah discovers the book of the law, which we know was Deuteronomy, uh, Davrim in, in the Hebrew text, that actually when he reads this, he, he literally tears his clothes. He hears something he has never heard before, and he calls the people back to this love of God with all their heart, their soul, and their strength. And it's no then coincidence that Israel, uh, Judah, experiences a phenomenal revival under the leadership of Josiah because he calls them back to this central idea. Uh, mm. And I think that's the sort of nuance it's the ebb and flow all the way through the old testament as we see god wrestling for their hearts and often their hearts strain from him i love i love that it's so helpful um there's so many things going off in my head to ask you off that but i think <laughs> the, the 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 first thing would be obviously that's still true today our hearts don't naturally want to always choose what god wants for our lives uh, that's the wrestle and the up and down of the worship journey for all of us, isn't it? And um, so I guess I'm thinking, you know, you called the prophets the, the conscience of the Torah. What would you say, this is a hard question, but what would you say is the conscience for the church today? Like what, 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 it, what's, what calls us back? Uh, uh, and do you think, yeah, what, what's, obviously we've been in a very tumultuous period and in, in, in essence, maybe that's the answer causes back to simplicity, the simple heart of worship. What would, what are your thoughts on that? Uh, no, I, I, I would I would go with you on that. I mean, I think we we benefit today, of course, not just with the Old Testament, the Tanakh, mm. but we have now the glory of the New Testament added to that, where we read everything through the lens of the death and resurrection of Jesus and, mm. and an embodiment of God's love for us, which is truly mind-blowingly awesome. Um, mm. And, of course, we are then called to understand this great love of God, which is unwrapped in, in the Torah, unwrapped in the prophets, unwrapped in the writings, and now embodied in Jesus himself. And again, I was reading this morning in my, in my daily devotions where Jesus is asked by an expert of the law, what, what in your opinion is the greatest commandment? And he refers to Shema. He says, mm. he says love the Lord your God with all your heart, your soul, and your strength. And so there is a simplicity. I, I think if, if lockdown and the pandemic is teaching us anything, it's that a lot of the stuff we thought was important is maybe not so important. A lot mm. of the stuff we're pumping serious energy into, you know, we're actually sort of learning to live without. And mm. then the stuff that is going to become the bedrock of our lives, the bedrock of our conversation, the bedrock of our confession, the bedrock of our discipleship. When we distill it right down, it's sort of relatively simple. You know, uh, three great loves, love the Lord your God, love your neighbor, love the stranger. I mean, they are the three great loves of the Torah. And I yeah. think they are embodied 
phenomenally in the life of Jesus. And the church itself is then called to be a community embodiment of those three loves also. Love God, love your neighbor, love your world. And, and that, I think, is, is the driving force and the driving essence of true worship. I, I love that. So, uh, so often churches wrestle with concepts of mission or evangelism and worship, by which we mean gathered singing or communion or liturgy. Uh, and actually you're saying, hey, Jesus, on the base of the Shema, is saying, hey, the centrality of worship is, is really simple. And it isn't to do with uh, what you do, so to speak, in terms of ritual, uh, but is to do with how you are and your character in loving God, loving the neighbour, uh, loving the stranger. Really yeah. strong. On the centrality point, because we're talking about the Lord being one as well, aren't we? And yeah. that, that being the heart of the Shema, as well as the response, the revelation that comes is the oneness of God, and, and, and in a sense, there's an echo then in, well, your heart should be one for God. Uh, I, I noticed the Liverpool reference behind you, uh, which is forgivable uh, from someone who doesn't support Liverpool. Um, I'm sorry. <laughs> but, um, but you referenced Liverpool in the chapter uh, as an example of the centrality. And I think it was really helpful. I think you describe yourself as a, was it, a, you're a fan, but not a supporter? Um, yeah, yeah. I mean, it's it's. I've supported, uh, or, or to use the language, I've been a fan of Liverpool since 1974. Wow. Um, when I watched them in an FA Cup final beat Newcastle 3-0. Um, I, I even have the 1974 replica shirt. So I'm a bit of a bit of a fan. But but actually, you know, the, the two great markers of my devotion in my world are are my resources and my time. So, so if you want to really see what someone believes in, we, we, we look at the big markers of the evidence. It's back to that Shema stuff of the stuff mm. that evidences itself in behavior. So our mm. belief system is always evidenced in our behavior. If we want to see what a person believes, we watch what they do mm. ultimately. So, mm. so look, as a, as a fan I'm I'm 100% Liverpool, but if Liverpool were relying on me for my time and my financial resource to drive their empire, then uh, then they would all be sorely disappointed. Because if you looked at my bank account, if you looked at my calendar, uh, you would not be able to tell who which team I support from those two great markers. So so the reality is I'm a fan, mm. but I'm not a supporter. Uh, and I think when it comes to engagement with the Lord, we can fall into those sorts of traps. Right. So, you know, are, are, am I a Christian? Yes. But, but uh, you know, is, is there a, a fan-like Christian and a supporter-like Christian? You know, mm, it's, mm. it's how far am I prepared to show my devotion to the Lord by keeping him at the center of all things mm, and mm, making mm. my life aligned to him in, in mm. every facet of my being. Th that's where the rubber hits the road. It's it's anyone can jump up and down and say, I, I, I support that team. Mm. But actually mm. it's it's the guys that are putting real money into the club and traveling all mm. over the world mm. to support them. They're, they're mm. the real supporters. And, and I think that's a danger. I think the profits strike at this. You're paying lip service. You know the right words to say, but... We're not seeing the evidence of the fruit of this in your mm. everyday behavior and, and, and in your conduct. And I think that's always a dangerous tension 
that has to be managed in our work, especially, especially the longer we go on in following mm. Jesus, we can we can just fall into the trap of knowing the right things to say while sort of managing how much of our world God really gets a hold of. Yeah, definitely. I, and I love what this illustrates as well is, you know, because <clears throat> what 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 you've done in this chapter is a, a really helpful theology of the oneness of God and the response that's required. But often, you know, theology and, and, and people can think, oh, I'm not into theology. Like It's a bit too high level or it's when does the rubber hit the road with this? But actually what we're learning through what you've written here is, you know, actually the rubber on the road, you know, it's all one thing here. The oneness of God means that all of we, all I am needs to respond to him. And that that's a core concept for worship, isn't it? That, that we want to be not just fans in your language, but supporters that evidenced it in our, in our time, our energy, our money, and that worship has something to say to all of these areas again not just like singing or something but it has something to say to every every lane of our lives absolutely i i i absolutely accept that and i think if 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 those listening or reading the book can really grab the idea that theology is not something lofty and distant and far mm. off it is in its essence an understanding of the lord himself it's it's getting yeah. to grips with who he is and then allowing that glorious reality uh, to touch us and and, mm. and as that does touch us it transforms us and that transformation mm. then impacts every facet of our being sooner mm. or later uh, as mm. we allow him to 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 move in us and through us uh through through you know our devotion to him mm. and and of course um ephesians you know talks of the eyes of our heart i'm just thinking being opened you know, that you might have, um, I think it can be understood as a long, long range vision and short range wisdom, you know, in the spirit. Yeah. And so, again, I think you bring this out in the chapter that the heart, of course, when it's when it talks about loving the Lord your God with your heart, it's not just emotional. And again, this is often something that's um, it can be uh, worship can be critiqued for being why well, it's all emotional. It's all reliant on what I feel. But the, there isn't a concept really as narrow as that is there here that the heart is the is the center isn't it of one's being it's like um the control center of everything you know and that's that's what ephesians is getting at as well i think would, would you would you absolutely. say that yeah yeah is it sorry sorry it is uh, absolutely i think the heart here is the engine room of our right. being um and what we're what we're being invited in to do is 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 place god at the center of the center um, and actually, uh, what's really striking is, is there's very little nuance at all, especially the Hebrew scriptures towards emotion in this. It is, it is very much about placing the Lord at the center and therefore allowing our actions uh, to follow that. And, and I, I, I love sort of the parallel. There's a, there's a beautiful story in Luke 7 of the woman who anoints Jesus. And, and, yeah. and often this has been labeled as an act of emotionalism. Uh, mm. because she gets emotional and there's nothing wrong with emotions, but actually at the heart of it, th this, these are the actions of a worshiper because even without saying words, she is placing Jesus at the center. So Jesus yeah. speaks, Simon speaks, his friends speak. She's the only one in the story not speaking. And yet we all hear what she is saying because she is placing him at the very center of her world mm. and and prepared to have her reputation 
impacted by that centrality. So, so I, I, I would, I mean, I'm from a Pentecostal background where we love emotionalism and, you know, you know, great music and, and, uh, and feeling stuff and goose pimples have goose pimples. I love, listen, there's nothing wrong with that, but some of my greatest times of worship, I have felt nothing. It's nothing to do with what you feel. It is everything to do with what you know. And it mm. is what we know in the engine room of our lives forms the bedrock of our worship lifestyle because then mm. it doesn't matter what's going on around us. The engine room is tuned into him. And because mm. of that, then, you know, we can be worshipers even when there's, when there's no atmosphere, no music, no smoke machines, no crowds, no support structure, we can find ourselves worshiping him as the woman does. She worships Jesus in the most hostile of environments. And yet she finds a way to, to place him at the center. And, and I think that's a great encouragement to us all. Absolutely. It's, it is because, it, as you said, it's not it's something everyone can do. It's something, you know, it's a choice to step into and to orientate oneself towards the one who's revealed himself which is why that whole revelation point is so important and why we started the book with this chapter you know the revelation of of god so just let's talk a little bit about that concept because i guess i think at some point in the chapter you talk about information mm. versus revelation and that they're not always the same thing gaining information that can just hit our intellect but revelation transforms us in some way Yes. Uh, for me, you know, collective worship's been one of those places where that happens, where what would have just been a head knowledge, you know, it, it, there's that moment I've experienced where it sinks to your heart in worship and it, it becomes a reality in a deeper way. Is that what we mean? Do you think, is that one of the dynamics and blessings that gathered worship brings us perhaps? Or did that, yeah, just talk a bit about that information revelation concept. Yes, I, I, absolutely. I, I think that there, there is a, a real difference between information and revelation in terms of a biblical conversation. I think yeah. when we look at a biblical conversation, information informs, mm. revelation transforms. Mm. So, we, so we get this beautifully in a moment where Jesus says to his young disciples, who do people say I am? Now, that's an information question. I don't need to I don't need any revelation for that. I just need to Google. I just need to listen. I just need to read the newspaper, see what people are saying. And all I'm doing is transferring information from one bit to another. But then he says to them, but who do you say I am? And he's mm -hmm. pressing there, I think, for a revelation question. He's, he's pressing, right, what do you actually know? Not what yeah. have you heard from others, but what have you heard yourself or seen yourself? And of course, we get Peter's amazing uh, confession, which Jesus himself says is revelation from the Father. And, and going back to your beautiful passage in Ephesians, you know, Paul says, I pray that the spirit of wisdom and revelation will be on you so that you will know him better. And there's this link between revelation and knowing. And then he goes on to say, I pray the eyes of your heart will be enlightened so that you will know the hope to which you have been called. And there's this profound link between really knowing something for yourself and, and having seen this revelation for yourself, so that you're not dependent on what the pastor says or what your spouse says or what your dad or your mom said, but you've got this 
for yourself. And of course, if Israel got the revelation, he is one, he is Lord God and he is one. If that's really a revelation, then, then Moses doesn't have to keep shoehorning the commandments at these people. They will do it because they see it, because they hear it for themselves. And, mm. and I think information leaves us with a, a religious experience that's more to do with I have to, whereas mm. revelation takes us to a place of I want to. So mm. because I see God for myself, I want to. If I don't see that as revelation, it often becomes a have to out of someone else's want to. So, mm. you know, I see it and therefore I'm trying to encourage you to see it. But because you don't see it, it's becoming a have to to you. Whereas for me, it's a it's a want to. You know, mm. my my wife, I've been married to my wife for over 32 years. And, and wow. when she left our home this morning, I mean, she didn't have to tell me, you know, don't commit adultery today. Mm. All right. She, she doesn't have to remind me of those laws. Why? Because mm. because there's an intimacy of love. And and when there's a revelation and intimacy of love, uh, we, we don't need to emphasize the rules so much because we're mm. doing it out of a want to, not a have to. And I think that's a dynamic shift that takes place. And I, and I think that's at the heart of Shema. And I think it's at the heart of the New Testament journey. Revelation brings transformation, moves us from a have to to a want to. And I think that's truly life-changing. So helpful. So helpful, John. And and I, I'm just thinking um, one of the things that's communicated there is, you know, there's this concept that, you know, we, we narrow down what it is to be human to our brains, to intellect, you know, or, well, I'm a Christian because I've intellectually assented to this idea that, you know, God is there and exists and, you know, rather than we are holistic beings, you know, and, and actually, and I think this is what you're, you're really communicating well here and getting to the heart of is that worship is about everything that we are, isn't it? Mm, totally. Laying down. And, and, and there is some sense of surrender of submission here, isn't it? Of trust. Um, there would have been for Israel big time in this moment of revelation. Yes. And there still is for us today. Mm. Uh, so, just talk a bit about that. Maybe just as we come into land here, one of the applications surely here is, is, hey, what are the things, as people are listening to this or watching this, what are the things maybe the Lord even now saying, hey, I need to lay lay down again? You know, because response is always going to be in some sense this submission, isn't it, to the oneness? It, um, it is. And again, uh, that, uh, that comes back to the power and mm. the necessity of the revelation. If we see who he is, then let, let me use this language. I hope it doesn't offend anybody. Our sacrifice becomes an investment. Mm. Uh, it becomes something we are putting in rather than something we are giving up. Mm. Um, so so when, when, when we see his glory, his majesty, his life, his love, I, I think the sign that we are seeing that is that is that the law becomes written on our hearts, as it were, and therefore we want to do certain things for him in a way that to the outsider will look like a sacrifice, but on the inside, it feels totally natural and normal yeah. and, and, and proper. And, and it's, it's that sense of, of moving to that place where this is what we want to do. If, if I could go back to the little story of of the woman who anoints Jesus in Luke 7. You know, she does that in the presence of Simon the Pharisee. 
Now, Simon could probably recite the Torah off by heart. So this man intellectually knows the law, and Jesus knows he knows the law. And in fact, Jesus is there at his house, probably for a theological debate. Uh, I, would, I would imagine, although Jesus is invited for dinner, he's the main course really that night. And, and, and yet Simon knows the law intellectually, but he's only seeing Jesus as a rabbi, whereas, and his actions reflect that. Mm-hmm. Whereas the woman sees Jesus as her savior, having had her sin forgiven, and her actions reflect that. And, and I think that's a powerful uh, juxtaposition that the Pharisee who intellectually knew the word of God, and he did, and he was a good man, Simon, but he knew the word of God and yet lost heart, lost touch with the heart of it. This mm-hmm. sinful woman who didn't know a fraction of the Torah, and yet she caught the heart of it. Mm-hmm. Uh, and and what's, how do we know? It's We know by the actions of both people that, mm-hmm. that one has surrendered and the other one is withdrawing from Jesus. Mm-hmm. And, and, and I think it's that everyday experience. Worship is an understanding. He is Lord. He is God. He is Savior. He is above all, before all, and over all. And actually, once I understand that, then, then anything I give to him is a bargain. Anything I give to him is glorious. Anything I give to him is a reflection of that revelation. And it, I, I think that's where true worship takes us. If you and I as humans can just pass beyond self for five minutes, get out of the gravitational pull of our ego and just place Jesus at the center, move away from meology and, and move over to theology. I think, I think we experience something we were created in the first time to experience. And that is a world where God is truly at the center and where our highest call is to love him, please him, and serve him. And I think, I think that's the essence of Shema uh, and what we're being called to be and do. Fantastic. I, I love that phrase, you know, we're not just giving up something, but we're investing in something. We're, we're, you know, that's a beautiful phrase of, of what worship's all about, in a sense, like we're investing in his worthiness, his praise, his glory, that he, his honour, that, that we're orienting everything we are. This is, in conclusion, what the Shema is about, isn't it? And what, what the cross is then illustrates in a, in a way deeper, richer way, ultimate way, that he's given everything. And so our response is to throw everything back in that we can, isn't it, in worship? Absolutely. Would you would you just pray as we end? Would you mind praying for anyone listening to this? You know, we're hoping that this conversation has not just been information, but it's revelation. Would you just pray over people listening? Uh, I would be us? honored to. I would be honored to. Thank you, uh, Lord Jesus. We come to you, and we open up our hearts towards you. And Lord, I pray over anyone listening to this broadcast, as Paul prayed for the church at Ephesus, that, Lord, we would have a spirit of wisdom and revelation, not so that we can be clever, but so that we can know you better. Lord, we want to see you. Lord, we want to know you. Lord, we want our hearts to be set ablaze by you. We don't just want to be people with an intellectual assent, but, Lord, we want our hearts 
to be a throne for you to sit upon, to be a place, Lord God, where you are at the center. And Lord, I pray for any person listening to this and watching this right now, that Lord, the eyes of their heart will be open and they will see you as they have never seen you before. And Lord, out of a fresh and glorious and renewed revelation, Lord, their lives will be attuned to you. Their lives will be aligned to you. And that, Lord, their lives will become a glorious extension of your love and your majesty. I pray that we will be men and women who learn to live lives of worship unto you. That everything we are and everything we do would be like a sweet smelling aroma in your nostrils and that, Lord, you would be blessed and you would be pleased, not only because of who we are, which you have made us, but, Lord, in return, uh, everything that we seek to become for your glory. So, Lord, your blessing on every person. Lord, may our hearts be open. Lord, may our lives be yours. And, Lord, may our strength reflect the best that we are because you have given your best to us. In Jesus' name I ask this. Amen. 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 Well, thank you so much, uh, John. It was fantastic to have you and to talk about uh, this excellent chapter in the book. Thank you. Thank you. My pleasure. Thanks so much for having me. Bless you.